0: The greatness of our Lord is displayed in the greatness of our Lord's plan. Outlined in Acts 1-8, following the Great Commission, when Christ sends out his people to go make disciples, the Lord sends out his people, and in Acts 1-8, he gives them a strategy to reach every tribe, tongue, and nation. It's a marvelous plan that displays God's wisdom. And by simple obedience... The Lord's followers could easily reach the world with the Lord's truth. With the Great Commission on our minds this week, I want to do as I did last year. And I want to pause from our usual study and consider this topic corporately by by looking at the word. We talk much about sending out others to fulfill the Great Commission. But I want us to consider our role in that commission as well. I want to dwell on the Lord's call and implant it both in our hearts and our minds through this week, so that when we come to this weekend of of the missions conference, we do so with our hearts prepared to worship the Lord even more for the majesty and wisdom of his commission. And so I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Luke, Luke chapter 16, and I want to bring to you a message I have titled, perspective proclaiming the gospel now for eternity uh, if you're using the pew bible in front of you, you can find today's text on page 823 and as always i ask those of you who are able to please stand for the reading of god's word luke chapter 16 beginning in verse 19 And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus, in like manner, bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, For I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they may also become into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to them, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise. And the dead who may be seated. It was J.C. Ryle who once wrote or once said, Forever is the most solemn word in the English language. Much like the stars seem to stretch endlessly in the sky, never finding their point of termination, forever speaks of a time that never comes to an end either. Forever has no limits. Just as we experience moments in our lives, forever is like an infinite collection of moments that continues and continues without ever stopping. Because it never ends, where one spends forever is one of the imperative decisions that any person will ever face. Those of us who follow Christ are told to always live with forever before us. Though we may participate in the world before us, and perhaps and hopefully even enjoy the world as a gift from the Lord, we must always live with eternity before us. Every thought, every word, every action is not determined by how we view our present circumstances, but by how we view our future circumstances. Everything we do is determined by the forever that is placed before us. Even our participation in the Great Commission is determined by that word forever. It causes us to dwell upon eternity that is placed before us, to rejoice in the Lord's provision of grace and mercy that he has extended to all of those who would have believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ. At the same time, it should cause us to meditate upon the eternity that is placed before others, knowing that forever is what they will endure. And so then forever calls upon us to proclaim the gospel. Luke 16, 9 through 31 presents for us two men who have already determined where they will spend forever. Jesus speaks here of forever, and he does so while addressing the disciples. Though very clearly, from earlier on in the chapter, listening in on this teaching is the Pharisees. And their arrogance is seen in their unwillingness to hear what Christ is saying and see themselves in this story. The result is that they have no fear of forever So Jesus gives us a story, or a parable rather, a heavenly story with an earthly meaning. This parable of Lazarus and the rich man. In placing this text before us this morning, my prayer is that it will force a change in perspective, causing us to see people in the context of forever, bringing about the urgency of sharing the gospel. Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through 21, that introduces us to these two men. One man named Lazarus, and the other who is simply described as a rich man. Jesus begins by describing each as they are in their life. And so I want you to note first, two men at death, two men at death, or two men before death, sorry. My note's wrong there. It's two men before death. I will confess this outline is not mine. It is taken from another message. And yet what that person emphasized is different than what I want to emphasize. And so my text here is different, or my sermon is different. So we look at two men before death. Two men before death. And Jesus says in verse 19, there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. At his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. Before death, these two men could not be more different. They existed in different social circles and social classes. They operated even with very different social criteria. One of them is rich in life while the other is poor in life. And the rich man, appearing to have everything in life, will have nothing in death. But the poor man, having nothing in life, will have everything in death. And we will learn that one man is rich in faith, and the other is poor in faith. The rich man is known by his wealth. He lives in opulence, both privately and publicly. Going out dressed in purple and fine linen, it says. Purple was the color reserved for royalty. It was the most rare of all dyes, and so it was both the most difficult to obtain and the most costly to obtain. Only the wealthy had the means to purchase it. Because of the association with royalty, when Jesus reveals himself as king of the Jews, it says in Mark 15, 17, and they clothe him in a purple cloak. They clothed Jesus in a purple cloak. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. The Jews used those robes of purple to mock Jesus. It was the ultimate act or ultimate form of disrespect, denying Jesus' authority and his kingship by cloaking him in purple and crowning him with those thorns. But the rich man here, by his wealth, had both the means and the authority to obtain these rare costly purple garments his clothing though is noted not just for its color but for its quality these garments are purple they are made of fine linen it says these are the costly of all they're made with the most best quality of materials and so this rich man lives a life of luxury but the rich man doesn't reserve it for special occasions only It's not as though he's headed out with dinner with his wife and wants to dress up nicely. This is how he always dresses. He is habitually, routinely living in lavishness, our text says. And while wearing these clothes of fine linen and purple, we're told that he feasts sumptuously. To feast is to denote happiness or merriment. It's actually the meaning of the word. It is the idea found in the parable of the rich fool that we read this morning, who became wealthy and his land becomes very productive. Luke chapter 12, that parable, it tells the story in verses 16 and 19 through 19, saying, he told them a parable, Jesus saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry, or feast sumptuously. Same word. The rich man of Luke 16 lives like the fool of Luke 12. He had all he needed and all he wanted in life. And while the rich man feasted sumptuously on whatever food he desired, laying at his gate is the man Lazarus, who would be content even with just the crumbs that would fall from the man's table. This man Lazarus is completely destitute. He has nothing. Lazarus cannot even beg without help from someone. Verse 20 says that he was laid at the gate, meaning he can't even walk by himself, but is dependent upon someone to carry him from place to place. And so that person lays him at the rich man's gate. It's humiliating enough, probably, to have to be carried by someone. But it was also likely very painful for Lazarus, because sores are covering his body. Even the dogs were coming to lick the sores. The sad state of this picture shows, first, the depth of the rich man's selfishness. That here you have somebody in misery, and, and the rich man's not even willing to come help. It also shows the depth of Lazarus's agony. Lazarus is in misery. He can do nothing for himself. Lazarus has no choice but to depend upon God. By depending on those people that the Lord has provided... But the rich man only needs to look to himself. He needs nothing and has all that he wants. While Lazarus wants nothing and has very little that he needs. The rich man is in love with his money and so focused on that money, he pays very little heed to Lazarus. In the section prior in Luke 16, Jesus is just taught of the problems of money, and he tells the disciples, no servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. And then he says, You cannot serve God and money. And then he not only speaks of the evils of money, but then in the text it tells us that the Pharisees are described as lovers of money. They're more like the rich man than they would like to believe. They are wrapped up in their own money and in themselves. (laughs) And so wrapped up in themselves that it causes them to neglect the needs of others. And Steve Lawson says, a man wrapped up in himself makes for a very small package. Their sin is not that they had money, but that their money had them. And even a poor man can sin in this way. Their God was the money that distracted them from the right priorities. More concerning was not their status on earth, but it tells us about their future status in heaven. These two men before death, the rich man, who has no name, and the poor man who is identified with the name Lazarus, they have much to tell us. Augustine even knows that even that fact, that the mention of Lazarus' name, but not the mention of, of the rich man's name, tells us something. He says Jesus kept quiet about the richest man, rich man's name, and mentioned the name of the poor man. The rich man's name was thrown around, but God kept it quiet. The other's name was lost in silence, and yet God spoke it. You see, God, who lives in heaven, kept quiet about the rich man's name because he did not find it written in heaven. He spoke the poor man's name because he found it written there. Indeed, he gave instructions for it to be written there. These two men, in their differences, are... Exactly the same classes of people we see today, giving us a perspective by which we look upon the world. We look upon men and women, and we see them not as rich or poor. We don't see them as healthy or unhealthy. They're not divided by social class, and they're not sorted into ethnicity or judged by their occupation. Before the Lord, each of them is part of his creation a work of his very own hands, an image-bearer who by their very existence proclaims the majesty of God. And so what matters is not the abundance of their possessions, but the abundance of their faith. The Lord looks not upon the abundance in life, but their abundance or their acceptance of Christ. There is no concern about whether or not one is rich in wealth or poor in wealth but whether they are rich in faith or in abject poverty of faith. So with the eyes of the Lord, we look upon every person concerned not about their position on earth, but concerned about their position in heaven. There are only two groups of people in this world, those who reject the lordship of Christ and those who accept the lordship of Christ. Every person we meet today or tomorrow exists in one of those two states. And when we meet people, it does not matter they're standing in society in their job or even they're standing before us. What matters is they're standing before God. While any of us still have breath, we look upon people in this way. And we praise the Lord with those who know him and we proclaim the Lord to those who don't know him. We proclaim the Lord while we can because at some point... Either we will die, or they will die, and we will lose our opportunity. Our days are numbered by the Lord, as are theirs. And so we must proclaim urgently, because the next opportunity to share may never come. Our text about the rich man and Lazarus reveals this in verse 22. It says, the poor man died, and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's side, The rich man also died and was buried. It's at this point that we find the only similarity between Lazarus and the rich man. It is here that they actually have something in common. They both died. That's a stat you can take to the grave that one day everybody will go to the grave. Unless the Lord returns first, every person will die. There's no escape. And so I want you to note, second, two men at death. Two men at death. Philip Graham Reichen writes, death is a great equalizer. Death is a great equalizer. Death eliminates all distinctions. It eradicates all inequalities. Death defines for us what really matters because it shows us what is truly secondary and forces us to focus on what is really primary. And the only thing that matters at death is who was Christ in one's life. Who Christ was in one's life determines who one is in death. We see that in Lazarus and the rich man here. It says first the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. Lazarus may have died without the attention of, of people but he died with the attention of God. There's no mention that there was a memorial service. There's not even a discussion of whether or not anybody mourned Lazarus' death. But the Lord took notice, and he dispatches his own messengers to tend to Lazarus, and they carry him away to Abraham's side, or Abraham's bosom, as some of the translations say that you may have. That's a figure of speech known to the Jews at the time to mean heaven. Abraham was the father of faith and the father of the faithful, and so his name is a way of identifying those who are faithful and the faith and where they will end up. (coughs) And so at death, Lazarus finds himself in heaven. All that Lazarus lacked in life, he now has in death. The joy and the merriment that the rich man had in verses 19, Lazarus now has in death. For the believer, there's no fear in death because what awaits us in heaven, the presence of Christ, it's far grander than the best lives we could ever experience here. I appreciate the words of William Wilberforce who said, I now feel so weaned from earth, my affection so much in heaven, that I can leave you all without regret. Yet I do not love you less, but God more. What a picture that is. A love of heaven weans us of our love of earth. Charles Wesley once wrote his brother John, and he relayed a story about a conversation he had when visiting with a physician. And the doctor said to Charles, most people die for fear of dying, but I've never met with such a people as yours, meaning Christians. None of them are afraid of death, but are calm and patient and resigned to the last. And John Wesley's response simply was, our people die very well. The death of Lazarus is in significant contrast to the rich man. The verse simply says the rich man also died and was buried. The rich man's death is unlike that of Lazarus. We're given no details about Lazarus except the fact that he died. But the rich man, he was buried, meaning he had a funeral. And because of his tremendous wealth, his funeral was likely a tremendous event. Attended by society's elite. It's probably filled with family and friends. Those five brothers that he mentions in verse 28 were probably there. While Lazarus died to the notice of nobody, everybody would have known about the rich man's death. But the rich man finds himself not in Abraham's bosom, but in Hades, the next verse says. Hades was understood in the culture as the destination of all those people who died, whether good or bad. But in the New Testament, that term Hades, whenever it is used, it is always used to speak of the destination of the unsaved. And so the rich man finds himself there. He finds himself in hell. What a horrible place that is. Matthew twenty-two thirteen describes it as a place of darkness and a weeping and gnashing of teeth going on there. Nine chapters earlier in Matthew, it also describes it both as a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth again, but then it calls it a fiery furnace. How horrible of a place that must be. That fire, which gives light, is present, and yet is still a place of darkness. A place where fire and darkness can coexist can be nothing but torment. Jude compares it to Sodom and Gomorrah says, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. In his writing of the inferno, Dante writes of hell as this miserable state that is reserved for the dismal souls of those who lived their lives with neither praise nor blame. They have been mingled with the wicked with the wicked choir of heavenly angels who did not rebel, nor were they pledged to God but to themselves. I don't think his description is wrong. Hell is not merely a place reserved for the most rebellious or the most horrific of all people, but is filled with those who chose simply to remain indifferent towards the Lord. So how we must plead with those that are indifferent? plead with them to remain indifferent no longer, urging them to turn to the only one who can rescue them from their sin of indifference, the Lord Jesus Christ. If only they would call upon him, they could avoid this place of torment because he is the God of salvation. We heard that from the prophet Micah this morning, but as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. If the Lord was sufficient to save Israel in the time of Micah, then he's certainly sufficient to save the nations of people today. Commenting on this verse, J.C. Ryle writes, Death is a great fact that all acknowledge, but very few seem to realize. There are two groups of people we just learned, those with Christ and those without. Both will die one day, but will we let them die without having heard? the Lord has called upon his people to labor for him. And never can we be held responsible for someone's salvation because it's not our work to save them, but it is our work to share with them. And we will be held accountable for that. In light of eternity, let us be urgent in our pleas. If people die apart from Christ, let it not be because of our disobedience, but let it be because of their decision why is it that people so readily accept the picture of Lazarus in heaven but very much are quick to reject willfully the picture of the rich man in hell? I think it speaks about the human heart that we will accept the good but not the bad. But as we read this, we either have to accept both those pictures or deny them both. There's no in-between. Luke nineteen twenty three through 31 It gives a picture of hell as a real place, and that picture is terrifying. We'll expound upon that more in a couple weeks, but for Lazarus, the picture of his afterlife is terrific, but for the rich man, it's torment. And so as we look at those verses, I want you to note finally, two men after death. We have two men before death, two men at death, and now we have two men after death. Matthew 8, 11 says, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, in the kingdom of heaven. And that's where we find Lazarus in verse 23. It says, the rich man opened his eyes and saw Abraham far off, and at his side was Lazarus. Lazarus has gone from this lowly place to now an exalted place. He now sits at the table, feasting away while the rich man has lost his place at the table. Jesus spoke of this great reversal during his earthly ministry, and now we find it present in the story or in the parable here. Notice how Lazarus remains silent in the entire account. Throughout this entire thing, Lazarus never complains about the hardship he experienced in life and neither does he gloat over his present state of goodness compared to that of the rich man. This is opposite of the rich man, who now spends most of the rest of this account trying to reason with Abraham. He still seems very oblivious to his own plight and his own heart issues. He seems to think he is still entitled to better treatment and to authority, to the point that twice, Twice in this account, he tries to summon Lazarus for his service. He wants Lazarus to be his own servant. Verse 24, says, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. And then again, he requests Lazarus' service in verses 27 and 28, trying to send Lazarus to go to his brothers and preach to them. The rich man expects mercy in death, though he would not give it in life. And yet, Lazarus received no mercy in life and probably doesn't expect it in death. Luke 6:24 through 25, it offers more insight into the rich man's plight. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep the rich man's wealth and status and money. They're not sufficient to garner a place in heaven for him. It's not uncommon to know that in today's world, people use their money to purchase positions of authority. But those who do that here cannot do the same in heaven. It just shows us that a person's worldly condition is an improper evaluation of a person's heavenly position. Those who have allowed their wealth to be their guide and God on earth, they've received what they are due on earth, and they're entitled to nothing in heaven. It says. Look at how Abraham responds in verse 25. Child, remember that you, in your lifetime, received your good things, and Lazarus, in like manner, bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. By those constant requests, it seems that the rich man thinks he's been treated unfairly. But everything seems to indicate that he had all the information that Lazarus had, and even had all the same opportunities to respond to that information that Lazarus had. It says in verse 23, And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off, and Lazarus had a side. So he sees Abraham, and then he recognizes him even calling him by name in the next verse, Father Abraham. According to Luke 3.8, the Pharisees call Abraham father, though they cannot be counted among those who had faith like Abraham. And so like the Pharisees, the rich man seems to know the truth, probably even coming from a religious family. But he took no heed to that truth. And then something very extraordinary happens. The man becomes converted. And not only is he converted, but then he becomes a missionary. He begs of Abraham in verses 27 through 28. Send him, send Lazarus to my father's house. So now he believes the truth and he wants somebody to go. For I have brothers, five brothers, so that he may warn them lest they also come into this place of torment. And so now he wants the message to actually be proclaimed. Specifically, he wants it proclaimed to his family. But then Abraham responds in verse 29, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. His brothers, like the rich man, all had access again to the same truth. Romans 1 tells us that people are without excuse. For what we can be known about God is plain to them, it says, because God is showing it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. The rich man's brothers have the same information and the same opportunity to act upon that information. But then the rich man tries to reason even further with Abraham. And he says, no, Father Abraham... But if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And Abraham responds further. He said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. And we know that Abraham is right because a short time later, Christ will do just that. He will be put to death on the cross. And three days later, he rises again, and yet people aren't persuaded. even though that event comes later, Christ's death and resurrection, there's already a story that's happened that proves Abraham right. John chapter 11 tells us a story of Lazarus, a different Lazarus, not the same one here. In that true story, Lazarus has died. The people begin to mourn their, his loss, and they call upon Jesus, who eventually returns and does What? After he's been dead several days, he calls forth and Lazarus lives again. And how do the people respond? Certainly some rejoiced. But we spoke of this back on Palm Sunday this year. They plot to kill Jesus at the end of John 11. In fact, it becomes their goal. John 11:53. So from that day on, the date of Lazarus' resurrection, they made plans to put him to death. But that's not enough. Go into the next chapter of John, John chapter 12, and it says this, when the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priest made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. When somebody did rise from the dead, their response was to plot the death of Jesus and the death of Lazarus. Their response to life was death. It's just as Abraham said in Luke sixteen thirty one: If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. And at this point, we learn two lessons. First, death is too late for conversion. There are no second chances at death. At that moment where one stands with God is where they will always stand. Like the rich man, they will receive their due judgment and they can expect no relief. Second, we learn that death is too late for us to be concerned about preaching the gospel to other people. Just as the rich man was not allowed to return and bring forth the truth to his family, we can expect that none of us would be able to return either. Now is the time to be concerned with salvation of others. We must live with forever always before us. Forever not only defines our lives, but it defines others' lives. This morning we had the privilege of receiving the Lord's teaching about these two men, who lived distinctly, based on what they expect out of forever. We saw two men before death, one who lived lavishly and the other who lived lacklusterly. We see two men at death, their deaths were just as different as their lives one being buried lavishly and the other dying lacklusterly as well one had the attention of the world, the other had no attention at all and finally we have two men after death with forever before them, one finds himself in Hades and the other in heaven the lives they will have forevermore will also be more different than the lives they had physically on earth one will live in adoration and satisfaction. The other will live in terror and torment forever. We must live with forever before us. With heaven and hell constantly nudging our hearts with conviction. Compelling us to live in light of the gospel that we've received by sharing the gospel with others so that they may receive it. It's just as Steve Lawson has said, we must preach with heaven and hell before us. We must have our toes on the very brink of eternity for our voice may be the last voice that many will ever hear. Let's pray. Our Father God, your majesty is placed before us in the story. We look upon it and we see your wisdom displayed in your perfect plan, Lord. Father, we look upon that cross and give you great praise, thankful for your grace and your mercy. Thankful that for those of us who have called upon your Son, you have rescued us from that very death. At the same time, Lord... May it compel a deep, convicting thanksgiving, Lord, as we think about the blood flowing down. Father, may we preach that to others. May we desire not to see them spending an eternity separated from us, separated from you, Lord. But Father, may we desire to see them come to know you and experience life and life abundantly, not just here on earth, but for eternity, forever, Lord may forever define how we live this week. We thank you for all that you do. you. Praise and adoration in all things. This is in your holy and precious name we pray. Amen.